Okay, Revelation chapter 2 this morning. Got it. We're going to read about the church located in ancient Smyrna, which some have called the Suffering Church. So as we look there, let's look to chapter 2 this morning and begin reading in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Since its foundation, the church of Jesus Christ has suffered affliction, tribulation, and persecution. The Lord Jesus himself suffered during his earthly ministry in many ways, chiefly by the religious leaders and Roman authorities at his trials and his crucifixion. Tradition tells us that all of his apostles were martyred with the exception of John, who wrote the Revelation as he was exiled on the island of Patmos. And throughout the history of the church, the martyrdom of Christians has memorialized their genuine faith in the Lord Jesus as Savior. Such works as Fox's Book of Martyrs and currently the Voice of the Martyrs document many examples of this truth. Today, in many places, the church still suffers persecution. Believers are still dying for their faith in China, North Korea, Afghanistan, and elsewhere. The Western world, especially America, has been largely spared of this severe persecution, but I believe that's starting to change in our day. Radical beliefs are strongly impacting our society that are not compatible with the Christian faith. The true church is looked upon as intolerant and unloving because it stands against abortion and uh, the LGBTQ movement, gender aberration, wokeness, critical race theory, and on and on the list goes. And if our culture continues in its current trend, persecution of the church is going to have to follow in some way. But we need not fear because our Lord knows the future, and he will help us to persevere whatever may come. This was true in the first century at the church in Smyrna, who knew firsthand what suffering for Christ was all about. This is one of only two churches in the book of Revelation that has no complaint against it and uh, has no correction by the Alpha and Omega, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it seems that times of suffering 
tend to get our eyes off of the world and keep us closer to the Lord. So as we observe the Lord's communion today uh, and his communication to this ancient church then, may it serve to encourage us today, even though we are not faced with the same kind of severity of affliction that they did. Our Heavenly Father, we pray your blessing on your word today, which makes us think, Lord, about the suffering church. Lord, all of us go through times of difficulty and trial, but Lord, we know that there are many in the world who name your name that are in much worse condition than we are. And Lord, we do pray for them and we lift them up today. And we pray, Lord, for our own country as we seem to be heading on a collision course with your judgment. Encourage us from your, your, your word today, Lord, and help us not to be uh, fearful, but to be faithful. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. As we begin this morning, look at verse 8. We are reminded of a church that existed hundreds and hundreds of years ago in a place called Smyrna. And uh, as we look at this, it will help us understand the way that the Apostle Apostle John wrote to them. Smyrna was a city that existed about 35 miles north of Ephesus along the Aegean Sea. It was also a port city, and it numbered about 100,000. Back then, that would have been a very large city. It still exists today as Izmir in Turkey, a bustling city of nearly 3 million and of course, not all the Old Testament or, or the churches of uh, Revelation, um, uh, the cities even in which they lived, many of them do not even exist today. Now, this particular city was considered the most beautiful of the region, boasting paved streets. Of course, not asphalt, stone. Uh, a library, a gymnasium, a multitude of pagan temples, and a shrine to Homer, who they say was born there. Now, its most impressive street was named the Golden Street. It led up from the harbor all the way up to Pegasus, which was the city's Acropolis, or High Point. And it was lined with temples to various heathen gods all the way up to that peak where there was a temple dedicated to Zeus. At that point also, uh, dotted along the uh, horizon were finely constructed homes and government buildings, and they named that place the Crown of Smyrna, and even the crown of that particular region. Like Ephesus, this was also a wealthy city because it hosted that port, and it was on a trade route. It also had a very large Jewish population, which became adamantly opposed to the church located there. The name Smyrna is interesting because it's derived from its trade in myrrh, an aromatic herb used in perfumes and also for embalming the dead. You'll remember that when Jesus was buried, uh, they brought this particular herb to his burial. Its aroma was produced by crushing the herb and the association of the name with the church located there really can't be missed. It was being crushed under the social, economic, and religious pressures of the day, 
Yet God was pleased with this church. It soon would be embalming their own martyrs for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how does the Lord Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, characterize himself to this suffering church? Well, he mentions in verse 1, these things says he who hold, excuse me, uh, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. The first and the last, that phrase has been associated with the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, <coughs> excuse me, which alludes to his eternal, infinite nature and that he is unlimited by time and space. So no matter what the church might be going through in the world, no matter how it might be affected, he is always present, he's always active in it. <clears throat> he mentions here also that he, he who was dead, <coughs> excuse me, that's the devil. He was dead and came to life. Although he exists outside of time, the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world in order to redeem it from sin and death. And as he did so, he experienced the difficulties of human life. He went through the process of death, through those atrocities of crucifixion, in order to pay the eternal penalty of our sin. But he did not stay dead. The power of life resided within him. And when he rose from the dead, he annihilated that power over the believer. So he wants this church to understand that, to remember this aspect of who he is. It would be an encouragement to them because they're going to suffer even more affliction than they have experienced. And some of them need to be faithful even unto death. There's nothing to fear, however, because the Lord has preceded them in death and he will meet them on the other side. Now, in verse 9, we have the commendation of Christ. <clears throat> Once again, the saints are assured of his intimate knowledge of their lives. He's aware of what they're going through. He knows what they're experiencing. And what he says is really not quite so much a commendation as a recognition of their suffering, which intimates his compassion for them, his concern for them, and they should not perceive their time of affliction as the Lord not caring for them or that he's chastising them in some way. His purposes are being fulfilled in them even through suffering. And really all of his people are going to experience suffering in some way and they can honor him through that. Now, three things are mentioned here in regard to this idea of affliction <coughs> or suffering. <clears throat> One is general, two are specific. The Lord Jesus first says <clears throat> that I know your tribulation. That particular word alludes to uh, pressure and the distress that comes from suffering in various ways. <clears throat> We can suffer physically, emotionally, mentally, even spiritually, <clears throat> and it can result from persecution, difficult circumstances, just the regular pressures of life itself as different things come in and we have to deal with them. 
One commentator put it this way, a restricting pressure <clears throat> that burdens the spirit. Excuse me. I don't know what's in my throat, but I can't get it out. Okay, let's back up again here. One commentator uh, made this uh, um, statement. A restricting pressure that burdens the spirit. Now, shortly before the trials that Jesus went through, he reminded his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So all of us have experienced, and we will continue to experience, these pressures of life that often can weigh heavy on the soul. The Lord knows that, and he's able to strengthen us in such times and take us through that and help us to grow by that. He goes on to say, secondly, I know your poverty. In the Bible, there are two words that are translated poverty. One of them alludes to being poor, what we would speak of as, you know, poor people, having uh, barely enough to subsist. The other one, however, means abject poverty. In other words, you're destitute, you don't have enough to live on. And this is the word that's used to describe the Christians in the city of Smyrna. They did not have enough to live on. Now, we might ask ourselves the question, well, why, why was this so? They're Christians. Wasn't God taking care of them? Well, no doubt this was related to the persecution they were undergoing. <clears throat> Prior to around 60 AD, Christians were considered by the Roman government as a sect of Judaism. And Judaism was actually a sanctioned religion. In other words, uh, they would allow that in their great plethora of gods that were worshipped by the Romans. So that meant that for a while, the Christians escaped persecution from the empire, not necessarily from the Jews, because the Jews were divorcing themselves from this, what they thought was a cult or a break or a sect off of their uh, belief system, and they began persecuting Christians. We see all that in the book of Acts and what Paul went through. But what this did over time was remove the church from the umbrella of protection that Judaism provided for them. Now under Diocletian, who was the emperor from 81 to 96, so he was the emperor that may have been responsible for exiling John uh, in whatever other persecutions might have been going on then, what uh, uh, happened under his administration is that emperor worship became compulsory. Citizens were required to burn incense once a year and confess Caesar is Lord. Now, if you lived in that day and you were a born-again Christian, would you submit to that uh, 
confession. Because if you did, you would get a little certificate that you had done so, and you were free to worship any god you wanted to the rest of the year. All you had to do was make that one little compromise. Well, true Christians of that day couldn't do that, so that placed them under threat of penalty, even death, and at best they would be looked down upon by Roman society uh, for not being loyal to the empire. Now this, along with persecution by unbelieving Jews and pagans, would have made it very difficult for them, in this city anyways, uh, to uh, make a living. If you had a shop, it might be ostracized. If you had a business, you might not have had uh, anybody uh, buy your goods. Uh, If you were a farmer and you brought your things to town, they wouldn't buy them. So perhaps you'd not even be able to get a job. So these are all things difficult for us to understand because we live in a very affluent society. But you know what? We have experienced government overreach. And uh, that can come very quickly and suddenly. How many people in the last year lost their job because of refusing a vaccine mandate? You can see uh, how things can change so quickly. And these things impact the church over time. Now, although the church in Smyrna was materially destitute, uh, the apostle adds here, or not the apostle, but the Lord Jesus, he says, but you're really rich. Spiritually, being rich is the most important thing in life. The riches of Christ were theirs through salvation. They were just the opposite of the church in Laodicea, as we shall see, who were materially rich, but they were spiritually poor and blind and naked. So no matter what your your material status may be, you always have the greatest status of being rich in the things of God and spiritual life and the riches of Christ. Now the next thing he mentions here is that he knows the slander that's coming to them through their enemies. As he says here, that he knows those who say they are Jews and are not, but are actually a synagogue of Satan. Now, persecution, again, in the New Testament times, arose from three sources. We've already seen that it could come from the government. It also could come from false religion or pagan religion or Judaism, which was also a religion at that time, and also it dealt with heretics from within. And we may suffer from these same sources today, But here, the unbelieving Jews are targeted by Christ, and he knows that they, uh, who they really are. He knows what they're doing to his church. Now, these Jews persecuted the church, really, from the uh, ministry of Christ on. There are many instances recorded in the book of Acts of how they, they persecuted individuals, how they tried to break up the church, It was no less forceful at the end of the century than it was back in the days of uh, the earlier apostles. Now, these people said they were Jews, and indeed they were. They were, physically speaking. They were as far as their religious heritage is concerned. So they were believers in the God of the Old Testament, in a sense like Paul was before he was converted. 
They thought they had the true religion, that they were helping God by exterminating this Christian cult, but they were only really proving that they were Christ deniers. They were not really uh, Jews that that God intended them to be because of that. They were instead servants of Satan. Now, Jesus made this clear on one occasion when he was addressing the Jewish religious uh, uh, leaders, and this is recorded in John's Gospel. You remember when he spoke to them and said, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do? Jesus recognized this way back then. So they're actually not a synagogue of God. They're not teaching and worshiping the true God there. They're a synagogue of Satan. And they supposed they were worshiping God, but because they rejected the Lord Jesus, whom God sent, they were doing the will of Satan. So they would blaspheme or speak evil or slander the Christians to the Gentiles and the rulers in their area. And uh, the believers, the Christians, were accused of some amazing things like cannibalism because they, they said that they were eating the body uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ and drinking his blood. Okay, They took that totally out of context. They said they were guilty of lust and immorality. I don't know where that came from. They were breaking up homes. Well, Jesus said that when he came, it would divide. Uh, a brother might be saved, but a sister not. A father uh, and uh, a mother, but not the children. So they're saying they're breaking up homes. They were atheists. How could they be atheists? Well, they didn't believe in all the other gods that uh, the Romans believed in. And they were political, uh, 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 politically disloyal. And that was probably the biggest thing as far as the government was concerned because they would not confess Caesar as Lord. Now, in similar fashion, the church is slandered today by proponents of false ideology and cultural change. And it's likely to become more flagrant and uh, more forceful as things move forward. But what should we do? How should we be thinking? Well, the Lord encourages the church with his commands in verse 10. And there are two of them. In the midst of all this cultural rejection and persecution, the Alpha and the Omega gives two commands of encouragement that stand in no matter what generation you may be serving God. The first one is, do not fear. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. How often do we find those words in the Bible? Fear not. Don't be afraid. The structure of this uh, sentence indicates that the church is fearing and that Christ wants them to stop fearing. Do you fear for America? Do you fear for the true church in its midst? Do you fear that God is not aware of what's going on? Do you fear that you may undergo some actual persecution? The Lord says whatever is causing your fear, you need to stop. Because, of course, he knows what's going on. Christ knew that the church at Smyrna was going to suffer even more than it had been. The devil was about to throw some of them into prison. 
and it will become a great test of their faith. One commentator wrote, Under the Roman legal system, imprisonment was usually not a punishment in itself. Rather, it was used either as a means of coercion to compel obedience, like not saying Caesar is Lord, or uh, an order issued by a magistrate or else as a place to temporarily restrain the prisoners before execution. So apparently, some Christians in Smyrna were going to be cast into prison and they wouldn't know what the outcome would be to that. Some of them, we find, are probably going to be executed. So such time of testing is allowed by God, but we have to remember that the devil is the instigator. The devil is the one who's motivating all of this. The Lord's behind it, but he can even use these kind of things for his will and purposes. We think of, the, we think of Job in the Old Testament. Another commentator wrote, Whatever Satan intends to accomplish through persecution, behind him is the divine intention to use suffering to ensure the approved character of those for whom the kingdom is being prepared. So God uses it for good purposes. Satan always uses it for evil purposes. He wants us to deny our faith. He wants us to cave under pressure. And so he's allowed at times to bring affliction into our lives, uh, testing into our lives. God, of course, wanting to approve us, the devil wanting to accuse us. Now, this testing period for Smyrna is said to be 10 days. Well, there's a lot of conjecture as to whether that's symbolic or whether it's literal. There's really no indication that we should take it figuratively. Nothing indicates that there in the text. But those who do, and there are many, uh, take it figuratively or symbolic for something I, I couldn't even take the time this morning to go through all the interpretations. So that in itself poses a problem. It's probably better just to take it as a period of 10 literal days, uh, a specifically short period of time of intense persecution. And the Lord forewarns the church that they need to be prepared for this and their faith is going to overcome their fear. And of course, 10 days may not seem very long at all, but uh, if you were living in Ukraine right now, you probably think it was. And so this is the kind of thing that was going to take place in Smyrna. The Lord's second admonition is be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. Now, you could possibly say that he's saying, well, be faithful until you die, until that day comes. But I don't think that's what he's referring to. It means here to keep on being faithful even if it costs you the ultimate sacrifice, even if it costs your martyrdom, if you will. So this likely indicates to the church that some of them are not only going to be in prison, but some of them are going to be martyred during this time of intense persecution. And even so, they're to remain faithful, even at the prospect of that ultimate and final sacrifice for the Lord Jesus. Some conjecture that 
Polycarp may have been the pastor of the church at this time when it, it received John's letter. That's possible because he was a very old man uh, when he was martyred. Apparently, if, this is, if that's so, if he was actually the pastor there, he did not die in that persecution. But about 60 years later, after Paul wrote, uh, excuse me, John wrote the Revelation, uh, this man was executed by being burned at the stake. And he was offered over and over again by the Roman uh, governor of the city uh, to recant his faith, to say Caesar is Lord and everything will go away and you can go on doing whatever you're doing. But Polycarp couldn't do that. He said, for 86 years I've been serving the Lord and how can I uh, give that up now? How can I turn my back on him now? Well, the Jews... Uh, desired his blood. They wanted him to be thrown to the lions, but that was not possible. So they opted for burning him at the stake. And even though it was a Sabbath day, the Jews were found out there looking for sticks and logs and all kinds of things to throw on the fire. So that's how much uh, the Christians were hated by the Jews and to the extent to which the government would persecute them for not uh, uh, being loyal in their minds to the government. So Polycarp joined those earlier martyrs who experienced the promise of Christ, I will give you the crown of life. Why fear death? Even a gruesome one, when you know that you're really not going to die, you're going to be with the Lord. Commentator wrote, we should not shrink from dying for Christ, even if death is a violent one. That's God's will for us, if that were to happen. The New Testament speaks of five crowns, this of course being one of them, the crown of life. Uh, This is the Greek term stephanos, which alluded to a victor's crown, It was a laurel wreath, so it didn't last very long. But uh, it was given to athletes who won particular events in those days. Sometimes it was given to a city official for uh, faithful service. But the crown of life that the Lord Jesus is talking about is certainly not of a material nature. He is eternal life. And the crown is not really something we'll put on our head. The crown is life itself. It's eternal life that he gives to us. So we're crowned with that as we remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. He closes out in verse 11 with a consolation which he gives to all of the churches. And the message always closes with a reminder, you know what, you need to listen to what's being said to you here. He who has an ear... Let him hear what this Spirit says to the churches, plural. So this indicates to us that every church was to receive this uh, information from the Apostle John. And if messengers were sent out, that means that they would first go to Ephesus and that uh, that, uh, uh, messenger would stay there. They would get their copy And then the next one would go to Smyrna and all the way around to the seven churches. So they all got their copies. 
They all knew what God said to all the churches. They need to pay attention to that. And in the word of God, whenever you see the idea of hearing the word, you are to listen with a view of obeying it. Not just to hear it, but to do it. We find that admonition everywhere in the New Testament. Now the consolation is given to the overcomer. And it says here, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And we thought we said last time the overcomer is not a special group of believers uh, who are better than all the other ones. The overcomer is the true believer who perseveres to the end. They remain faithful. They don't give up. They don't turn back. They don't prove that they were not a genuine professor. We know that in every generation of the church, uh, there are those who uh, genuinely profess in Christ, and there are those who merely profess him, but they're really not saved. Persecution often weeds out the crowd. Now, those who are faithful need not fear death because they're not going to partake of the second death. Their physical death is just going to be the gateway, the entry into uh, eternity, into uh, glory with Christ and the saints. The second death is only for those who reject Christ. And it's mentioned two other times in the book of Revelation. So let's turn to, uh, to Revelation 20 this morning. Read a couple verses there that explains to us what this second death is all about. In Revelation 20, we are told about the great white throne of judgment where all those who have not received Christ will receive their judgment. And that judgment is mentioned in verse 14. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Now, Hades is the holding place. Some is translated in some um, uh, Bibles as hell, but the Greek term is Hades. That's the holding place of the dead without Christ. And it's a place of suffering, as we see in Luke 16. But it is not the second death yet. It's not the lake of fire yet. He says this is the second death as they're cast into the lake of fire, which is hell, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's the second death. Then over in chapter 21 and verse 7. Now this again is the Alpha and the Omega speaking in verse 6. And uh, he will give the fountain of water of life freely, freely to him who thirsts. He overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God. He shall be my son. But... The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So that means everyone who's not been forgiven of these kinds of sins because they come to the Lord Jesus as their Savior, that's what they have to look forward to. Eternity separated from God in the lake of fire. But we do not have to fear that because we've trusted Christ and the first death is the way we get to heaven, not the way we get to hell. An old professor of mine (coughs) wrote in his book on the seven churches, 
If men and women today would fear the second death as much as they seek to postpone the first, there will be a great turning to God in our land. And how true that is. How we try to extend life as far as we can. But someday we're all going to die. And that will be uh, glory for us. But that will be awful for those who know not Christ. Well, let's draw some applications from what we find in these verses. First of all, we're reminded that the Lord Jesus is ever-present watching over his people. He knows everything that goes on in your life, good or bad. He allows tribulation. He allows setbacks. He allows ill treatment. He allows the devil uh, uh, to afflict us to a certain extent. But his purpose is that we might persevere, that we might grow, that we might depend upon him more. But he'll never ultimately harm us, even in those times we may temporarily fail him. And even death itself cannot harm us. Secondly, I don't know and you don't know what the future of America holds. But I do know this, that we should not fear it. I think many Christians are caught up in fear over what might happen to our nation. But the Lord is with the the faithful, and the Lord will help us to stand for him no matter what happens. If persecution comes, then maybe we really needed it. And it will surely weed out the faithful from the unfaithful. And perhaps someday we'll better understand what uh, the, the ancient churches like Smyrna suffered for the Lord Jesus Christ. It also should be a reminder to us of our brothers and sisters around the world who do suffer in more ways than we do. We should be praying for them, even though we may not know them by name, that God will help them be faithful rather than fearful and to stand for him, even if it may cost them their life. And we should pray for each other as well, that we will stand in our day and age for what is true, what is right, what is godly. And finally, because Christ died and rose again, he's delivered us from the second death. So we don't have to fear the first death because that's just going to usher us into his eternal kingdom forever and ever and ever. So may we remember these truths each time Some form of tribulation comes our way. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful today for the truth of your word. We're thankful, Lord, that it presents the Lord Jesus as the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the one who is always with his people. We're thankful, Lord, that Uh, Even though we will go through periods of suffering in this life, we have all of eternity to be free from it. We do think, Lord, of our brothers and sisters around the world who are in great danger, who may not have enough to subsist, who may be in prison, who may be facing martyrdom. Help us, Lord, not to be forgetful of them. And Lord, if there are some ways that we can give that would help them, we just pray, Lord, you bring that 
to our attention, to our minds. And Lord, we pray that even in our nation, as we are disheartened and discouraged and sometimes perhaps even uh, fearful, help us, Lord, to uh, walk with you, to stand tall in you, and to walk by faith, not by fear. So Lord, bless us, we pray, with these words today in Jesus' name. Amen.